It seems that the gap is growing between what kids study at school and what they need to survive in the real world. And there is growing pressure to reconnect schools with real world needs. Today we're going to talk to somebody whose company Up To You Education Services helps teachers and leaders develop experiential learning projects, setting up new schools and helping to grow their core leadership skills. So can we please have a big round of applause for Mark Upton. Hello, Mark. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm very well. I'm sat here in my home in the forest of Colserola, just next to Barcelona. And you're a few miles away, aren't you? Yeah, just a bit further over over in Shanghai. So it's my uh, it's my late afternoon on a very sunny afternoon here in here in Shanghai. Today we're going to be talking about experiential learning, about how education works, and what life is like in China. Because you've been there, you've not just popped across there on holiday, have you? You've been there for a few a few months now. Yes, that's that's right. I arrived here in two thousand and five. Yes. Very briefly, could you take us through your journey from starting to get into the education sector to where you are now? Sure. Um, well, I, I grew up in, in Wallasey in, in Merseyside. Um, and I should say at this stage that even though I've been in China since 2005, my Chinese is still not very good. But my excuse is, you know, I'm from Merseyside, so I'm still learning English. So that's my that's my way through it at this stage. But yes, I um, I was fairly good at, at sport and I was fairly good in school. I went to uh, a normal comp on, on Merseyside. I'm the youngest of five kids. And uh, the idea of being a PE teacher and playing sport all day with a bunch of kids and having fun was my idea of paradise, really. Um, so I ended up going to Loughborough University where I did my first degree in Joint Honours Physical Education and Geography and Sports Science, and then um, joined State uh, Secondary Modern School in those days in, in rural Lincolnshire. And then, much against my better judgment and my preconceptions, which I had to challenge, I then joined an independent prep school. And it was there that I realised that, um, well, because I had thought that you couldn't have a good state sector until you closed down every last independent school. So I, I had to challenge my preconceptions and I realised that youngsters have problems wherever they are and teachers in whichever system do their best to help kids thrive. So I then actually remained in the independent sector and I was then ahead of a few schools in the UK um, and did some school improvement work with schools in Europe and then came out here in, in uh, 2005 to set up a new international British school. So that was the, the start of my journey here in China. When did you get this idea that experiential learning really is a phenomenally important part of the learning process? Well, I think in, it's like in many situations with teachers, you know, most good teachers are using experiential learning all the time. They are trying to ground kids' experiences and learning in, 
in what they know, what they can find about from the real world. Um, but, you know, and I would, as a head, um, in, in my first, you know, headship, I would sort of say the standard bit about, you know, what we need to be doing is to helping ev- help every child achieve their potential so they can play their parts in, in society. And I, I genuinely believed that. But what occurred to me and what I found was that the, you know, the education system actually is phenomenally outdated. It is broken, as, as Sir Ken Robinson, the late great Sir Ken Robinson would have said. And that, you know, there is this, um, negative correlation between the amount of time that kids spend in school and how creative they are. Every five-year-old is incredibly creative. And by the time they're 17 or 18, we've managed to knock it out of them. And, you know, despite my best efforts in a number of schools, and being the head of an independent school and then director of education in, in independent schools, I had far more flexibility to make changes in a system. But even with that flexibility, um, there was a growing awareness for me over the years that it's impossible to really make a difference within standard schools, despite people's best intentions. And for me, that's because we we still look at value added for schools or judge schools success based primarily on examination results. So although all good teachers want to focus on well-being, um, you know, we're, we're sort of forced into boxes where we can't actually do that. So I was continually looking for systems or approaches or ways in which I could free my teachers up from being stuck inside the assessment box. Um, and gradually I explored um, different ways of trying educational systems um, and gradually um, formalizing experiential learning and developing creativity and empathy, um, I could see as delivering really good results in terms of keeping kids creative and keeping them confident and them starting to be able to focus on self-directed learning. In a minute, I'd like to ask you about a few examples of what you were able to do to try and put those ideas into effect. But if we could back up slightly, as headmaster of a school in the UK, I know that at the moment, headmasters are under enormous pressure from Ofsted. This has been in the news. You had this case of this poor headmaster committed suicide because of of being afraid of the Ofsted report and and now there are uh, people saying that Ofsted should be banned or dismembered or or burnt at the stake or whatever. From your point of view, I mean we're talking about over 20 years ago now, uh, but what sort of pressure are headmasters under to run schools in the UK and how much flexibility in reality do they have? Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's a great question. <laughs> and I think for me, some of the, the, the most important factors around that are for heads, you know, we want to focus on the real customers. And for me, the real customers are kids, you know, supported by their parents. And Schools and heads should be able to do that by providing evidence of their own success based on their own portfolio, just as kids should be able to do that right now. So it should be based on uh, schools explaining 
what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, and sharing that, the context specific of what's going on in their school by telling their own story. And that's what we should be being able to do with kids. But instead, we're having to work, and then, and now I think all over the world in that respect, there's a, a commonality that schools are still stuck with having to answer to criteria that might have been useful around the time of the Industrial Revolution, but is totally out of date now. You say that the, the customer are the kids. And from what I've observed in the, the current education system, the kids are the material that are processed, but the actual customers are the parents. They're the ones who pay if it's a private school. Uh, they're the ones that vote for what's happening if it's if it's a public school. And a lot of people that I've spoken to that work in alternative education all say the same thing, that the evidence demonstrates that doing things differently is better for the kids, not only in their capacity to learn, but also their mental health. But it doesn't float with their parents. Most parents are uncomfortable about the change and they would prefer the old system because it never did them any harm. Okay, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because all parents are experts in education because of all of, all of us have spent time, you know, <laughs> in schools. But unfortunately, the schools that we spent time in and the society and culture that we spent time in as the youngsters is completely different to how it is now. And I would say that one of the main roles for a head is in leadership, not in management. You know, for me, I would, I would sum up the difference. It, it's not original. I would sum up the difference, you know, that, that leadership is, is doing the right thing and management is doing things right. And yes, you need both. But for heads and leadership teams, it's about doing the right thing, both with parents and with kids. So it's more a case of how we can tell the story to parents so that they know it's a partnership between home and school and to give them a voice, a genuine voice, not keep them at the, the school gates, and for schools to be transparent about the factors that are important. And, you know, I found having run schools in the UK and then running schools and groups of schools here in China, um, you know, that's, that's one of the, the common factors are that, you know, parents are obviously massive stakeholders in, in, in the upbringing of their kids. And Chinese parents are probably, in many ways, even more um, critical on looking for objective evidence that their child, and in many cases, obviously, it is only one child, so they'll feel, I've only got one chance at it, I've got to get this bit right. So it's about gently holding the hand of parents and explaining, this is what we're looking for. And, you know, examining, well, what is education about? What do you want for your child? And we don't tend to have those conversations. And again, I mean, just referring to the Chinese factor on this, it's a bit like, um, you know, I've, I've said to my teachers many times in, in feedback sessions, you know, in, in, in what in, in the old days were called, you know, parents, um, evaluation sessions or parents evening, you know, it's, um, imagine yourself as a GP. 
you know. Um, so it's no good just to be telling families what's wrong with their kids if there is something wrong. You know, first of all, we should be starting with the, the positive factors. But then after that, you know, and we are then moving on to the other areas, it's a case of, well, what are we going to do to fix it together? How can we allow kids to develop? So, you know, coming back to your point, well, you know, the role of parents, yes, they are customers, but they are the secondary customers, but they are the primary socialising influence on youngsters. And I think what we need to help parents do is to realise that is their role. They delegate. So, for example, you know, I'm, I'm an XPE guy. And so it's a bit like, for me, the role of a coach. Um, you know, a coach basically should be looking to make themselves expendable. You know, they've served their purpose because you want to give somebody who's developing the, the ability to see how they can improve and, and develop themselves. And in this point, Parents need to understand and, and believe that they are the chief coach and they just delegate some of the coaching tasks to the school, but they retain control and they are the chief coach. Let's go back then to the things that you try to do with the power that you had as headmaster. Could you give us, give us a few specific examples? Again, in terms of the leadership factor, I think one of the most important factors is that we have to empower so we have to be empowering everybody around us, kids and teachers. You know, the, the primary task of leadership in schools, I think, for, for a head is to empower teachers to do the job that they are passionate about. So we have to be removing hurdles. So, for example, going way back to my last school in the UK um, in 2005, you know, we had an inspection at that time and my my board of governors were very confident I'd been there four or five years saying well Mark I'm sure it'll be fine won't it in the inspection I said well it might be but it's going to be a bit of a risk because actually we're going to minimize all of the documents that we give we're going to fulfill all the criteria but you know the key thing the main thing is that the staff will be able to explain what they feel they are doing in the school and it'll be evidence-based on the research that they are doing and the projects they're doing with the kids. And I said, but there's a risk in that because when the inspectors come round, they might not be happy with that idea. And it was a five-day inspection. I remember on the first day, you know, when I produced my um, much thinner uh, stack of papers, that the inspectors weren't too happy. And it was a bit of a worrying night. But later on, they could see that the staff could explain exactly what was going on in the school and that the, you know, the paperwork was in the background. And by minimizing the paperwork, we maximize the opportunity to teach for teachers to do what they need to do, which is to teach and take youngsters from play to passion to purpose. So, you know, for me, a slim line um, inspection system has to be the way to go. And I also believe that, you know, schools portfolios in the same way as youngsters' portfolios and explaining the context of what they're doing is the most important thing. So what I've always tried to do is to empower teachers to be able to do that. So when I first started um, international school here in, in Shanghai, I remember uh, one of the staff saying to me a few weeks later, um, what had made a big Im impact for them was that I'd physically gone round and given all the staff a little coupon which gave them five chances to make big mistakes provided they were doing it 
for the good of, of kids. And it was a small gesture, they said, but they said it made a big impact because it, it set the, the context for them and empowered them to be able to take risks. And teachers need to be able to do that. Heads need to be able to do that without being in fear of um, not being able to experiment and develop. And for me, that ties in with, you know, what we should be asking is, what is education for? What's it about? Over the years, I guess my views have gradually evolved. And I've, I've come to a point, there's a great educator in the States called Greg Martin. He's come up with a, with a nice little definition, which I really like, because it ticks all the boxes for me that, you know, education needs to be seen as a habit and a mindset, allowing individuals to collaborate with everybody around them and to acquire and apply their knowledge across disciplines and in order to address changing needs of their community and of the world. And I think that works when we're then talking with parents because parents want the kids to make the most of their abilities, but we need to help them realise that, you know, kids don't know what that might be. It's not about subject matter, it's about skills and it's about passion for lifelong learning. So, you know, I think that we, we need to move forward and use things. For example, I brought in a lot of project-based learning across a group of schools here in China so that we could give the, the, the practical opportunities for students and teachers to develop and to be constantly asking questions. I mean, we should end up with, with more questions and answers. And I think for me, that's what education needs to be about. So other ways in which I was unable to develop that here was to link professional development of teachers directly with the practical on-the-job skills that they wanted to develop. And I think that's that's really important because we don't actually rely or allow teachers to keep developing those skills in a way that is meaningful and helps them develop youngsters. So evidence-based action research by teachers is really important. So I've used that lots of times. And there's nothing more powerful. I found that, you know, if you're trying to to reassure parents that what is going on in the school is valid, then you have open evenings where you allow the teachers, you allow the parents to walk around um, and meet a class, meet a teacher in the evening and then talk about the teacher's research so they can say, this is what I've been trying to find out. This is what I've been doing with the youngsters. And this is where we're up to. And these are the steps that are helping your child develop their passion and their skills. When parents see that, you know, evidence-based research is working for their kids, then it means there's less of an emphasis on just the examination-based side of it. So, you know, that's certainly a good way of doing it. And building empathy is really important. So being able to do experiential learning in a community is vitally important. Before we move across to China then, you've given a lovely explanation, but I can imagine that there are some listeners who aren't familiar with all these ideas of, of, of projects and experiential, et cetera, et cetera, are, are still a bit lost. Just to give us an idea, could you give us a specific example of how you put that into effect? Sure. So um, a project which I worked on um, just a few years ago here, and we're still now doing this and bringing it back to the UK, is to link schools directly with their community. So 
we were able to take uh, youngsters and set up an experiential learning center with a car design company. And we then enabled the youngsters to work directly with the designers and also with um, disabled people in the community to help them move from immobility to mobility. And the key factor here is that they were co-designing. So it was youngsters, designers, and disabled folk co-designing the solutions. So you can imagine the impact in terms of that um, springboarding empathy and springboarding and helping youngsters focus on the end result. In other words, a practical application and a practical solution to a real life problem. And not just using teachers, using people within the community. And that's been really powerful. So for me, um, you know, Project-based learning is great. PBL, you know, where you have projects and, and, and you're moving forward. But you need project-based learning based on real outcomes that are going to improve the community. And then that focuses everybody's attention and you get to practical end results. Let's go to the point where you've, you've moved across to China and you're now setting up a new international school. How much of a carte blanche did you have there? Did you have your hands tied or were you able to do pretty much whatever you wanted? I've actually set up and run quite a few different international and bicultural schools here now. And I've had a fair degree of flexibility, um, but that has to be taken um, stage by stage in terms of helping people realise that these steps they're taking are not going to lead to diminishing academic results. You know, the, the whole point is you can be reassuring people that academic results and excellence will go hand in hand as a byproduct of real education. So it's by, it's by proving practical examples. So Here's one thing I've always felt because I've, I've done a lot of work on the design of schools and, and the design of learning spaces um, and, you know, how teachers can use those spaces. And what I've, what I've tried to say to teachers when setting up new schools and you're dealing with the dynamics of change is that, you know, parents, especially, you know, in China, Chinese parents, they want to be, there's a long, long a tradition of very, very good education and parents are massively interested in education, but they, they need reassurance if you're setting up a new school. And so I said to staff, what we've got to do is to give the feel that this new school within a couple of months is four or five years old. And what do I mean by that? It's a case of that when parents walk around, this is a lively school, which is exciting, where kids are confident um, and they can be individuals. And in that way, people can see that the school is working. So you've got to get to that point as quickly as possible. And you do that by experimenting um, and feeling the pulse of where youngsters are up to and what their needs are and freeing teachers up to focus on meeting those needs. So the first thing is that kids need to feel that they're happy. You know, so in, in the first couple of months, kids need to be going home. And, you know, when the parents are saying, well, what's this new school like? And they say, well, I'm really enjoying it. I'm making friends. I like the teachers. I'm able to do all these different activities. You know, those are the main factors that we need to establish. So building up um, the, the confidence factor for both youngsters and for teachers, I think, is, is number one. 
Secondly, you've got to be able to be freeing up teachers from wasted time on unnecessary administration. You've got to be able to make life as easy as possible for them so they can spend more time working with kids. And thirdly, you've got to be able to facilitate um, ongoing research, action-based research, where these teachers and the support staff can, you know, develop themselves and lines of inquiry based on, well, you know, um, how am I going to help my kids develop? And in that way, I think you reach um, a mature school, one that seems to be three or four years old, um, quite quickly. But the advantage over uh, a longer established school is that you've got the excitement of people wanting to make a mark, make a difference, and feel that they are empowered to do so. When you say needless administration, freeing teachers up from needless administration, what, what sort of things are teachers asked to do these days that you consider unnecessary? Well, you know, for me, constant box ticking is not a good way of uh, running education. Uh, yes, we need assessment and we need feedback of progress, but that should be based on portfolios. It should be being able to allow teachers and youngsters to tell their own story of where they're up to, what they're finding out, and how we can improve. It shouldn't be um, having to go down um, very, very specific criteria um, based on narrow factors in terms of exam success. And I know that's a generalisation, but you know, when you cut to the chase in penny schools, that's what life is unfortunately about. You're talking about sort of uh, assessments and grading. Yes, and I think, you know, if um, if teach and, and homework, you know, I mean, for goodness sake, I mean, why are we still using something which is so outdated? You know, I mean, especially in primary schools, I mean, there is no evidence that, you know, that suggests that lots of homework in primary school, you know, makes a big impact. For me, it doesn't seem to make any impact. I haven't, except, you know, it might be, reassuring to parents at a very narrow way that oh our kids are now doing something yeah for example you know um even on that one i um in one of the schools i set up here uh you know i, I was trying to explain to parents that if their kids are on the phone in the evening saying to another child well you know this is where i'm up to with the homework or what did you find out then they should be celebrating that collaborative work and we want collaboration, and yet we've got these institutes, you know, institutions, the schools, you know, in the real world, you know, um, when people work together, we call it collaboration. When kids share knowledge in schools, then we tend to call it cheating. It doesn't quite work for me. You said that the Chinese have a long history of great education. Maybe I'm, I'm out of touch here. But I got the feeling that the Chinese were very high on turning up and doing what you're told so that you can pass your exams. And that experiential learning wasn't exactly at the top of their list as far as learning techniques go. Am I wrong there? Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, you know, and um, a bit like I was saying earlier, that, you know, if, if anything, Chinese parents can be even more critical um, and, and be looking for what they would maybe see as objective information and feedback in terms of how well their kids are going. But, you know, in the 18 years I've been here, I've seen that massively change. And 
you know, parents are far more discerning. They, they realize that if their kids are going to succeed, that they need a far wider skill set and they need to be able to make decisions in life, um, from, from a position of uncertainty. They need to be able to work out, okay, if I need to change jobs five or six times in the future, how am I going to do that? How do I reskill? What direction do I go? Um, how do I take that on board? How do I use it? So there is um, certainly a, a growing understanding of the importance of creativity, decision-making, uh, leadership and collaboration. And the government has recognised that and wants you know, far wider criteria of measurement of success in education. And that's great to see. Uh, so I, you know, I believe that, you know, this sort of global village bit I was talking about before, you know, it's, although it may be a, it might be a, a matter of degrees, but all parents, all kids are faced with the same issues. And, you know, kids now, the biggest factor anywhere in the world, I think, is their well-being and the well-being of their teachers. And we need to be freeing up schools to be able to focus on well-being without them feeling that they risk not being able to prove value added. You know, I mean, if we, if we look at the issues in education, the, the assumptions that we should be organizing everybody by age into grades and forcing them to do the same things at, at the same time for 12 years, it's crazy. You know, and if we, if we look at, um, if, if we consider the, the impact of decisions shaping our lives and we don't spend time in schools preparing kids for that then we're failing them so you know we're i don't think that we can be trying to fix a broken system i think we need to be finding new ways of making education more more collaborative and proving that works alongside the the, the existing system before we move on to new ways of finding ways to, to change the system rather than fix it, let's take a break now because we're, we're about halfway through the show and it's time for the Learnability Quiz. Learnability Quiz is three questions vaguely connected to the theme of the interview, which maybe unsurprisingly in this case is China and education. So question number one. What is the name of the Chinese philosopher whose teachings emphasized education and self-cultivation, which has had a profound impact on Chinese education for centuries? Well, Confucius did make a very, very big impact. Is the correct answer, Confucius. For an extra, for an extra point, do you know what, what the name of Confucius is in Chinese? Well, I told you my problem is that, you know, I'm already... I'm still learning English, you know, being from Liverpool, that's my problem. So I'm using, I'm using my, my get out of jail free card on that one. Right. Okay. According to the sources that I have, the Confucius in, in Chinese is, well, I've no idea how you pronounce it. It says here it's Kong Qi or something like that. But anyway, you got 10 points. You, you answered the question perfectly. Question number two. According to the Chinese, one of the oldest universities in the world is based in China, and it's the University of Nanjing, I understand. According to the history books, when was it founded? 
I'll give you to with, within 100 years. I have no idea. And I would say that um, for me, though, you know, if we're defining what university life was or when it was uh, set up in, in China, the whole concept of, of education in China within a community has been very, very important. So all the way back to Confucius time, you know, learning in small groups um, was vastly important. So you've got me. According to the history books, Nanjing University was founded in the year 258 AD, which is a little bit before Oxford and Cambridge, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Okay, so unfortunately, no points there then. Final question, and th this is the tricky one. Right. We've spoken about how the Chinese education system is very much geared on exam-based learning. And the Chinese education system is notorious for the most important exam, which is the same for everybody who wants to move on to further education. Do you know what the name of this exam is? Yes, that's the Gaokao. For 10 points. No, no doubt there. No hesitation whatsoever. The Gaokao exam, also known as the National College Entrance Exam in China, is a notoriously high-pressure test taken by all students wanting to attend college or university. And I understand that passing it is considered a gateway to success and shifting up the social ladder. And that's why the mental pressure for many teenagers is simply overwhelming. Okay, so 20 points out of 30. Congratulations, Mark. I'll, I'll settle for that. I'll, I can live with that. Let's move on then to how the system can be improved. Rather than fixing, we're looking at new ideas, new ways of, of dealing with education. What pearls of wisdom do you have to share on that subject? Well, I think that uh, I would come back to this idea of, of having communally meaningful projects that we have to, you know, we don't prepare kids for the real world and we don't listen to them. And if we look at, you know, the major problems impacting our world at the present time in terms of global warming um, and, uh, you know, trying to move towards sustainability, then we need to be providing a springboard for youngsters to be analysing that, but also for them coming up with the solutions because we're not allowing them to do that. And I actually believe that that should be at the core of education. Uh, there's a great guy called um, Benjamin Freud, who has this wonderful concept of PBL being the North Star, but that is only if you've got communally meaningful projects. So in other words, helping kids come up with solutions and, and working within the community. So a bit like I gave the example of helping um, Disabled people, you know, co-design solutions to immobility problems and developing empathy skills. So for me, the biggest factor is trying to provide enough opportunity where we can nurture curiosity in learners. But I do believe that we need to be tying this in with impacting on real world problems because our generations have already messed up way too much and you know, we're not coming up with the answers and we need to be allowing students to do that. And PBL stands for project-based learning. 
Yes, that's right. So, but taking project-based learning to the next level by having the you know the projects um, making a real impact on world problems. Because while while you've been in China, you've actually set up your own uh, consultancing company, up to you education. What services does that provide? So basically, um, up to you education works on the principle that you know it really is up to you. It's about um, empowering people to make their own decisions and make sure that they are equipped to be lifelong learners. So there are two areas that up to you education works in now. One is on the um, development of of teachers and leaders and the setting up of new schools and and cultures within schools. And then the the second area is on sustainability services, uh, which also expands to helping businesses develop their leadership core skills. Because for me, you know, leadership in business is actually and should be very similar to leadership in schools. So the soft skills that educational leaders have are the very skills that businesses now also need to develop. So this this sort of dual area of um, education and sustainability um, has evolved within up to you and I guess not surprisingly given that you know that's tied in with my own evolution um, in terms of of the integration between the key factors of learning and education and being able to make an impact and solve the problems that we are faced with. What sort of clients do you have and what problems are they experiencing that make them want to pay for your services? On the school side, then um, quite often the um, leadership development courses that I do are based around skills development and trying to help teachers be freed up in the same way as we want youngsters to be freed up so that they can focus on the important factors and that they can follow the same pathway of going from, from play to passion to purpose. It has to be fun. It should be fun. Um, so on the educational side, schools are, are interested in, in how we develop that, but are now also um, helping schools develop their own action research bases within the school itself so that teachers and kids can dip into that alongside um, still having to do the normal curriculum. And so people can go and get that experience because professional development shouldn't be externalized. It shouldn't just be one-off sessions. It needs to be developed within a school um, in tandem with the school and based on the school's needs and based on their own evidence. So that's where I come back to the coaching model again, you know, being able to equip people with the skills to self-analyze and work out their own solutions and how they can improve their own their own performance. Now, in terms of businesses, there's a survey a while ago, I can't remember the, the year or, or who did it, but the important factor was that if you took 50 school leaders and put them into businesses to run businesses, they would actually probably perform much better than if you took 50 business people and put them into schools to run the schools based on the soft skills and the empathy and the, the understanding, the compassion and collaboration that needs to take place. And it's interesting, isn't it, that in the business world, those skills to solve problems and real problems are um, becoming more and more important. So, for example, if you take the work of Paul Polman and his great book, Net Positive, 
where he's talking about, you know, companies giving back more than they take out and realizing that their stakeholders are not just the shareholders, but are the whole community and how collaboratively we can work business, education and community together to make a real impact to solve problems. So for me, that's the, you know, the main factor of um, how education and business ties together within the sort of consultancy work that I'm involved in. Um, and something else that I, I, I've, I've found extremely useful, when I went back to, to Cambridge virtually last year, you know, having said that people should be doing lifelong learning, then I thought, well, actually, I should be able to prove that rather than just saying it. So I then went back virtually to do um, a sustainability management course with the university. And uh, one of the leaders of the course, a guy called Wayne Visser, talks about being able to create thriving society, thriving economy and thriving nature and, and the transitions that we need to do to get there. So for me, you know, restoration of ecosystems, um, renewing uh, resources, resilience, revitalization and well-being, these are all the factors uh, which are very important. So helping companies and schools explore ways towards thriving and well-being is something which seems to be of interest to people. I assume that the people that come to you for support and advice have already bought into the idea of what you're saying. It's not a case that you say, well, you have to do this, and they go, no, 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 no. It's like, oh, okay. Where would you say that the friction points are? Where Where is it most difficult for them to achieve what they want or what they think that they want? I've come to realize over the years that um, you can't spend a lot of time, and trust me, I've tried it, you know, trying to convince people that this is the way forward. People have to feel that. They've got to see evidence of it in action. So the only way to do that is to build up a critical mass by working with people who already get it or already along that journey. Because in that way, we can, we can start to prove that these things work. Um, and, and then you can take that evidence and allow people to move slightly beyond their comfort zone, other people, and see, well, actually, you know, I could, I could take that risk. I can build that on to what I already know, make new learning for myself and apply that. So, for example, at the moment, um, I'm doing um, a study with a university here in Shanghai about how we apply creativity and innovation from undergraduate design students in helping to design better schools um, for youngsters and sharing that with youngsters back in the UK and having live links. So, you know, if we can produce examples of global village learning and present that to a wider audience, then people can say, oh, okay, well, maybe I could use that. Maybe I can add that on and that will help me down my pathway. One of the things which I, I don't really understand is that given that this idea of doing education in a different way has existed now for ooh, decades, if, if you want to go back all the way to Summer Hill in the 1950s, then we're really talking about uh, what uh, almost 60, 60 odd years. And yet the amount of progress that 
that has been made is is almost i mean I, I don't want to insult anybody here but it's almost negligible the people that i talk to about education are almost 100 percent from schools which still follow the traditional system in all reality do you see any changes being made in the next the next 60 years and what would those changes be it's a great question um having spent sort of 40 years setting up and running schools in in a couple of continents you know i i sort of find myself thinking well has that been a bit of a waste of time really um you know have i really been able to genuinely help people develop and what am i going to do with the next 20 years i mean i'm i'm 61 now so i want to feel that i've made some sort of actual impact in reality so you know i would liken this to if we if we try to to fix a system by looking at schools on their own out of context with with the real world then it isn't going to work because we keep separating off education from the real world but the two are you know they are directly tied together and so that's why this whole concept of looking at community and global villages and there's some great work being done by um, Amanda Faulkner and Stephen Fern, who are looking at this internationally. I'm delighted to be helping a bit with that. So what does that actually mean? If we, and there's a great diagram which um, Amanda Faulkner has come up with, and we've just had that translated into Mandarin so that we can use it here internationally. Um, and it, you know, it's this idea of what is a global village. And at the heart of that is community, which is after all what schools should be. But, you know, you can have the development of eco schools. You can have, um, the development of experiential learning and labs and studios and creative cooperatives. You can have business becoming involved. You can have, um, shared facilities. You can have, um, local businesses supporting education. You can have, people with real life experiences sharing what they have done with youngsters. And this is what we've lost in schools. So my view is that um, if we can work towards cohesive examples in the real world of global villages, then we start to build a critical mass. And I would liken it to, you know, the whole issue of how are we solving world problems at the moment? You were saying just before about, well, we've known for a long time that the education system you know, it's broken and, and there isn't much of a change. And I would say exactly the same about, you know, we've known about global warming, what's happening, and we know about sustainability, but hey, how much further down the route are we? Well, we're not, because we're not listening to the, the ones who really matter, who are the, the kids. Or if we are listening to them, then we're saying that the two rebellious are not coming up with the answers. Well, they are. So we have to facilitate that and we need to do it within communities where people tell their stories. And again, it comes back to you know, teachers being able to say, this is what I'm trying to do in my classroom. Um, this is what I'm finding out. And this is how I'm now using it to improve um, life for my kids. And that's what we should be saying within global village context. Uh, you know, here are the problems. This is what we're trying to do at the local level, because it's context specific to solve problems it might be sustainability we're looking at it might be looking at um you know from degrowth to post-growth and these are these are the sort of solutions that we need to try out and basically we have to have a dialogue we have to have people talking about the issues and being able to put to one side their own particular take 
and to discuss in detail well what might the solutions be and can we come up with some practical examples like experiential learning that will deliver results because i mean for me you know i need to see some of that happening before i get too old i think that goes for both of us you mentioned the example for instance of the youngsters designing cars or or mobility devices do you have any other favorite examples of how uh, project-based learning has been put into action yeah i mean you know there are um anything that gets kids solving problems in the real world so for example you know we're also working with with a chinese university here now where the the undergraduates are going out to assess what their suburb is like and they're linking that with schools and to find ways of improving that so that they are more more sustainable um, so you know going out and doing um, research in a community that will look you know how much uh, food is being grown locally, how much of an opportunity have people got to share facilities, are there any coffee shops which are tied together where people can come in um, and do recycling, are there any examples of shared tools, shared learning at a real level, then you know by doing an audit on what a suburb or a village or part of a town is like then that's the starting point and we don't get that you know, by sitting in schools. We get that by getting kids outside. I mean, I, you know, I did joint honours PE in geography. And for me, you know, even when I was back in school, getting out and doing physical and human fieldwork was so important. And I think, you know, that we are, the world is becoming more and more abstract and people are getting further and further away of, from direct communication with each other and sharing ideas and sharing solutions to problems. So in a nutshell, we've got to get kids out of school buildings into the environment and we've got to get them coming up with uh, local solutions to local problems assisted and supported by business and community. So this philosophy of learning is something which is out there and you help other people do it. Does this idea of experiential learning also, is it something that you've done yourself? Has it affected the way that you learn? Absolutely. And I would say that, you know, the for me, the last 40, 40 years have been a sort of, you know, constant, um, constant learning opportunity and trying out these different things. I would go all the way back to, um, so when I was, when I was a youngster and growing up, I mean, I was sort of, fairly good at sport and academically, but I had a, um, a fairly bad stammer as well. So I was able to hide that in many ways. And people with a stammer get quite good at being able to think ahead because you want to avoid the words that you, you know, that cause you problems. Um, so you end up thinking ahead and you, you sort of develop those skills a little bit. And I found that, you know, um, <laughs> probably the, the earliest example for me of experiential learning for myself was, you know, why, why on earth was I going into teaching when I had a stammer? It wasn't, you know, it didn't really sort of work out as a good, maybe not the sort of ideal job to go into. But I found that, you know, if I was with a bunch of kids, either in the classroom or out in the sports field, then my stammer didn't seem to be quite as bad. And so, you know, learning through those experiences was very important and that builds self-confidence. And then when I became, you know, a head of a school that I'd actually been, you know, um, a teacher in, 
and for the first time standing up and doing assembly with all my colleagues at the back, you know, sort of knowing this guy, and then suddenly he's the head in front of them. And I could feel the stammer coming back a lot, you know, at that time. But working through problems and thinking, right, okay, what was the knock-on effect of this? How can I take this? How can I reevaluate and apply it? Then that was a, a very early um, experience for me. And then I would say constantly, you know, every time that you're dealing with um, a problem for, for youngsters or for staff, that's a journey, isn't it? It's coming up with co-solutions and empowering people to be able to to work forward. So it's hard for me to pick out more individual examples unless we've got about three hours more that we could talk. So. Mm. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have much more time to talk. In fact, if our listener is interested in, in finding out more about project-based learning, where would you recommend that they went to? It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, if you... If you, if you Google any project-based learning, you know, there are lots of good books out there and lots of schools giving examples of that. But I, as I would say, for me, the North Star is linking project-based learning with real problem-solving examples from the real world. So um, what I can do is, after we've finished, I can send you some specific links that people could have a look at and explore that further. And obviously, I'd be more than happy to kick around ideas with people if they're interested, because as I said, it's all about that dialogue. It's all about the, the sharing of ideas. Um, and that has to be a two-way process. Okay, I will take those links. I'll put them in the show notes and be delighted to do so. Okay, so finally, Mark, uh, g given that most of the people that listen to the show are either people involved in education or parents of children currently going through the education process, if you had one key message that you'd like them to take away, what would that be? The most important thing for me, I think, either with, with kids or with teachers or teachers approaching kids or parents is thinking, how am I going to make sure in 15 years' time that I've got a really good dialogue and open relationship and friendship with these youngsters that I'm involved in? So keeping open that communication channel, I would say, has to be the most important factor. Keeping communication channels open with, with teenage children is not the easiest thing to do. This is, this is very true. We could have another six hours just on that one, couldn't we? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Ian. It's been great fun. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.